0: Today's text is an interesting one, as all are. On January 29th, 2012, I preached the first sermon I've ever preached at Calvary, I ever preached, was in this room on that day. I wasn't pastor yet, but I was preaching one of those candidate sermons, one of those awkward candidate sermons to a room full of people, many of whom are not here now. (laughs) You know, the core, the members, the onlookers, the gawkers, the who is this guy. We preached this, I preached this message from Acts chapter 8. And I introduced at the end of this message what I hoped would be a, a sticky statement, a catchphrase of sorts that would define both our philosophy and our purpose, that would give us a, a sense of, of mission, of what we're about. And on that Sunday, I introduced this simple phrase that, for me, really defines church. It did then, it still does. For God, for Dothan, for the world. At the end of that message, I prayed a prayer sort of like this. And I know this because I wrote it out, and I don't normally write out things I'm going to pray for. But I wrote out a prayer for these three things in regarding that statement, for God for Dothan, for the world. And this is still my prayer. So would you pray with me this morning? Father God, we are your people. We exist for your namesake. We represent you, not just in this place, but everywhere we go and everything that we do. Father, I pray that what we do would bring glory to your name. Father, you've placed us in this city. We are to be for Dothan. I pray that we will be consistent, intentional, persistent conduits of your joy to this city. But Father, we are not here for ourselves. Or even for the sake of these people alone. But we are for the world. So, Lord, I now pray that where we go and what we give and how we pray would cause Christ to be known throughout the world. Father, as we pray this morning, as we gather and worship this morning, we do not know the possibilities, we don't know the outcomes of our prayers, our giving, or our going. We don't know how you're going to empower this great work, but we know you will. So, Lord, that remains our prayer. Empower your great mission. Use us for your glory, for the good of those who need you. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 26. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. Now, I don't wanna just read through these scriptures, through these verses too quickly that you miss out on the amazing. Here's Philip, whom God had already used to give a great evangelistic message, the first evangelist, as noted in scripture, First one, given that title, he was a deacon. He was one of the original that was chosen to be a deacon in the church. And God had gifted him with an evangelistic heart. He'd already given a great evangelistic message, as we saw. The church now has been dispersed because of persecution. This is not just social persecution. It's not just cultural persecution. It's not just general unpopularity they had with the people around them. No, this was real. This was hardcore. They were being rounded up. They were being arrested, they were being beaten, they were being imprisoned. And as they were dispersed because of that, they were accomplishing the Great Commission just as Jesus had promised. They were his witnesses now, Jerusalem, Judea, and now Samaria where Philip had preached eventually to the ends of the earth. And it got me thinking as I was just considering that, just rereading the passage this morning. And it's more of a, I don't know, it's an open question, just something for you to ponder a bit. If the heat gets turned up on us enough, I mean, if the persecution really becomes real, let's be honest with ourselves. Not just the sort of thing that might get you a little pushback on your Twitter account or get you um, some unfollowers from your Facebook or your Instagram, but the sort of thing that really costs you something because of what you believe about Jesus and what you say. Because it's not just private personal beliefs that get anyone in trouble. It's the open, honest confession of our faith publicly. That's where the rub is going to happen. So what would happen to us? And I just wonder, I don't have the answer, but what would happen to us if the pressure got turned up enough and persecution became real and we began to be pushed out, would we go underground? Would we dive deep? Would we get silent? Or would we speak up? Would the, would the message amplify? Would it, would, just, would it just blow up everywhere because of the pressure? Well, there it did. And so now an angel of the Lord, here's, here's God's supernatural activity in his mission. He sends an angel to tell Philip where to go, and he gives him some very specific instructions, but he doesn't tell him what's going to happen when he gets there, and he doesn't tell him why he's sending him there. Now, I don't have time to break down every part of the text like that, or we'll be here a while. But that seems to me to be a pattern in Scripture, of God giving a command and expecting joyful obedience as our response without giving us the details, because God does not invite us into his planning processes He's not asking for us, for our approval to his strategies and to his mission. He is asking for us to do what he says, to trust him enough to obey him. And so he says, here's what I want you to do, Philip. And the angel told him, and that's pretty clear. I want you to go to this particular place. And we know geographically there are at least two ways that they could take this trip. So he gives him a specific one. No, don't go on that road, go on this road. And I want you to go right now. Here's what I want you to do. Look at Philip's response. He rose and he went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. So again, you catch what's happening here in this story. Here's a man from Ethiopia, and it's common in ancient literature, including biblical literature, literature of the first and second century. Ethiopian typically would mean black, That would just sort of be a common phrase. It's something we might use as a phrase, like African. Ethiopia being the largest province of the time. Here's an African man. He's on his chariot. He's presumably doing what people did at that time when they read scriptures, meaningful texts. They would read them aloud. That's how he knew. Philip wasn't reading his mind or looking over his shoulder. He hears him reading aloud. This man serves the queen. Candace is not her name, by the way, for Bible trivia's sake. Candace is her position. This would be like Pharaoh. Caesar. Queen of Ethiopia. He's reading the the, the text. He's reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, now it's getting very specific, go over and join this chariot. Have you ever had an unction? a, A sense of, I don't know, compulsion? Something that feels like the leading of the Holy Spirit to go talk to somebody? That person standing over there, Uh, That person sitting at that table, uh, that person down the hall, that that neighbor that you've just met, the sense that I think God wants me to go talk to them. I think this is a gospel opportunity. So go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him. He ran to him. He's excited to do this. He's joyful in his response. He runs to him and he hears, hears him reading Isaiah the prophet and he says, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb, before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. "...and the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, "'See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized?' And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. What? Carried him away. He did the task. He obeyed the voice of the Spirit. He accomplished the mission. And the Holy Spirit had other missions, other tasks. The eunuch saw himself. Exodus, it's important that Luke noted that Philip found himself there. What does that mean for us? Philip didn't take himself there. Philip didn't sneakily skip out into the night. Hey, I'm out of here. Holy Spirit whisk him away. He found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, the, passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Now, real quick, because I don't want you to get hung up on this. Some of you don't have an ESV version. You might have a, an NIV, one of the nearly inspired versions of the Bible, with you this morning. And so if you're looking, you're saying, wait, you skip verse 37, okay? I, I know that in your NIV you have a verse 37. Other translations may as well. Let me just give you the footnote if you don't have it. The earliest and best manuscripts don't actually have verse 37, that's why if you're reading a New American Standard or English Standard Version or New Revised Standard Version, it's not there. Your King James will have a verse 37. Your NIV won't. It's based on different manuscripts. I don't want to get into that. I'm sorry. I just took you into the high weeds. Forgive me. Let's come back out to the green. I don't do the fairway. It's assumed that what's implicit in the text, future translators thought needed to be made explicit that no one would be baptized without making a profession of faith. I think we can assume that's what's happening in the text again. This is a quick summary. This isn't everything that happened as it happened. This is not a play-by-play. It's not a novel. It's a very quick summary. So verse 37 is that statement of faith, which we can assume rightly that no one would be baptized without rightly declaring who is Jesus and what you believe about him. So that's verse 37. But let's look at the context here just for for a moment. We saw last week that the context of this is the gospel and now the Holy Spirit have come to Samaria. And I'll be answering some more questions about this, because I know last week's message created some questions. Here's what I believe is happening in the text we looked at last week. The people are responding to the gospel, but the gift of the Holy Spirit falling on them, like it did at Pentecost for the Jews, now happens for the Samaritans. Later we're going to see it happening for the Gentiles as well. It shows up with some evidence, because obviously Simon the magician sees the evidence. He sees the evidence of them being recipients holy spirit and he wants the power to give other people that but it's the gift of god by a spirit like pentecost but the result of the gospel going to samaria the part i want us not to miss is this and it's verse 8 so there was much joy in that city when you and i take the gospel someplace whether that's across the street or across the world what you're really carrying with you is joy that that's what i want you to consider when you take the gospel you're taking joy you're not just taking information you're not just taking opportunity ultimately you're taking joy because what you're taking them is the opportunity now to be free free of sin You're taking the message of deliverance to them. You're taking with them now the invitation that they can know God for themselves and be justified, be made right in His sight, that they can stand before the Almighty, perfect and holy and just in all His ways, and be acceptable to Him because of Christ Jesus. You're taking them ultimate joy. I can be forgiven. I can know God. I can spend eternity in His presence. What a gift of joy! Every time you think about the potential of having a gospel conversation with someone, think about the joy that could be theirs if they'll hear it and respond to it. You're bringing joy. This is exactly what Paul wrote about in Romans chapter 10. I won't elaborate on the text, but I do want you to hear it. He said, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Now, we take that for granted now, but they didn't quite understand that yet. They still consider themselves primarily an exclusive group. Christianity must be for the Jews. Jesus was a Jew and the apostles were Jewish and the church was birthed in Jerusalem. But they're soon learning now that it's going out. Now it's to the Samaritans. Eventually it'll be to everyone, every pagan place and people. We know this now. God is not a respecter of persons. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jewish, Samaritan, Gentile pagan. Ethiopian, Asian, Greek, it doesn't matter. But How will they call on him and who they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him and who they've never heard? And how are they to hear it without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. I listened to something funny the other day. Someone posted a, a message on Twitter. It was a 911 call. And it was a frantic babysitter calling 911 because she couldn't find the kid she was babysitting. And so the 911 operator is asking, you know, explain what happened. Well, we're playing hide and go seek, but he's really good at it. And then she goes on to explain some nonsense. This is not like a normal kid. Like he went to magic camp. He spent a week at magic camp, he knows all these magic tricks. Well, how long have you been looking for him? Three hours. Been looking for the lost kid for three hours. He thinks he's done some sort of, you know, hocus pocus or something. You know, that can be a little bit tragic, and I'm sure if you're a young babysitter, that would make for a frantic moment. But you know what would be worse than being lost for three hours and having your frantic babysitter looking for you and unable to find you? It would be to, to be lost somewhere and have nobody looking for you, nobody caring, nobody concerned, and that's what Romans 10 is about, to be a man like this Ethiopian eunuch, and no one know, no one care, no one care that he's trying to put the pieces together, no one care that he's trying to assemble his view of God, that he believes in God, obviously, he had gone to Jerusalem to the temple to worship, which people from all over the world would go, it's a you can look up pictures, you can, you can use the interwebs and find videos of what the temple would have looked like in Jesus' day. A foreboding structure could be seen from a distance It's set atop the biggest hill in Jerusalem. And there was a court, an outer court for the Gentiles where people could come who acknowledged God in some way. And he's trying to figure this out, but he obviously doesn't understand how to be made right with this God other than there is a God. He has laws and expectations and trying to figure this out. What do you do? How beautiful... Are the feet of those who preach the good news, the Bible says. In the contemporary English version, it says, it's a beautiful sight to even see the feet of someone coming to preach the good news. And that's what I mean when I say you bring joy. When Christ is introduced, that's a beautiful sight. Now, there's something I don't want you to miss in this text. And it is a critical storyline. In fact, maybe you could, if you're a note taker on the notes that I've given you, you may want to just mark right through a critical storyline and switch it to the word the. The critical storyline of the Bible. And I don't want you to miss this because this is the point to the original hearers, which makes it our critical point as well. Here's what's happening in this text, and don't miss this, okay? This text is all about, by the will of God and the sovereign work of God, the gospel going to Africa. That's what this is about. This will explain in the life cycle and the growth story of the early church. How in the world did the message of Jesus Christ get all the way to Africa? Well, this is where it begins. It starts right here. Now, bear with me for a moment because I think this is worth hearing. Do you know where the evangelical church is strongest right now on the whole planet? Do you have any idea? If you thought it was in the U.S., close, but no cigar. If you thought it was in Europe, you're about 100 years off. The rate of death among Christians, so-called Christians in in Europe, is higher now than their birth rates. Religion is not just declining on the European continent, it's collapsing. But Africa, Africa is a different story. Right now today, there are more Christians in Africa than on any other continent. Studies suggest this, by the year 2060, 40% of the world's Christians will be in sub-Saharan Africa. And it's not just the number of Christians there, because we could attribute some of that to population growth. It's the sort of Christians that are there, the type of Christians that are there. Because the research that we find says they're the most committed Christians on the planet, the most likely to pray daily, the most likely to consider their faith to be a critical component of their lives, and the most likely to be engaged faithfully, weekly in worship. That's what's happening in Africa. Right now, over nearly 700 million, not quite 700 million according to the latest data, Christians in Africa. It started here. Do you see what I'm saying? I mean, something about this ought to go, wow, one guy on a chariot, one man who listened to, the voice of God and responded to the spirit of God shares the good news with him and now today in our time we're talking about more Christians in one spot than anywhere else on the earth and here's the amazing irony it won't be long till that continent will be sending more missionaries to reach the rest of the world. A place that once was known much more for its animistic religions, paganism etc. will now be ground zero for the gospel going out to the rest of the nations that's an amazing thing To me, that's an amazing thing. How many of you have ever heard or seen it in pop culture, maybe read an article or seen it in a a movie or a show, Jurassic Park, something by Stephen King maybe, the butterfly effect? Ever heard of the concept, the butterfly effect? Well, let me explain it to you, today's your day. (laughs) Here's something that's probably only half of us read. Um, When I get my weekly copy of the MIT Technology Review, I'm kidding, that's dry humor, folks. (laughs) But this was an MIT technology review. On a winter day 50 years ago, Edward Lawrence, a mild-mannered meteorology professor at MIT, entered some numbers into a computer program simulating weather patterns. And he left his office to get a cup of coffee while the machine ran. When he returned, he noticed a result that would change the course of science. The computer model was based on 12 variables representing things like temperature, wind speed, whose values could be depicted on graphs as lines rising and falling over time. So on this day, he ran a simulation that he'd run earlier, but he rounded off one variable from, well, you don't have to worry about the numbers, they're long, he just rounded it off. To his surprise, that simple act of rounding off that variable, that tiny alteration, drastically transformed the whole pattern. And over two months of simulated weather, here's what he found. The way nature works is this, small changes can have large consequences, like a butterfly, flapping its wings, it ultimately results in a tornado. Lauren suggested that this idea, this butterfly effect as it became known, is a way to explain how small changes, small decisions, small actions can have profound, unpredictable consequences. This idea also became the basis of a branch of mathematics called chaos theory. We don't know what these actions will do. We don't know what these actions will produce. In American culture, you may have heard uh, Benjamin Franklin's version of some similar kind of concept. And Ben Franklin was only copying what had been around since the 13th or 14th century when he wrote this Americanized version. For want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, the horse was lost. For want of a horse, the rider was lost. For want of a rider, the battle was lost. For want of a battle, the kingdom was lost. All for the want of a horseshoe nail. In more modern vernacular, those of you who are familiar with the classic, if you give a mouse a cookie, (laughs) if you give him a cookie, he'll want some milk. If you give him some milk, he's going to want a straw. If you give him a straw, he's going to want a napkin and so on and so forth. Why am I telling you this? I hope you get the idea. I don't want any single person in this room to ever underestimate the potential impact of one single gospel conversation. One single gospel conversation. That's the butterfly effect. You don't know where that person will go. You don't know to whom that person will talk. You don't know the impact it might have on that family and their extended family or that place where they may end up. You just don't know. Don't underestimate the effect of one gospel conversation. And that's a positive way of spinning this. A negative way would be saying, don't underestimate the impact of ignoring the voice of the Spirit saying, go talk to that person. Don't underestimate. See, here's God's mission in our mandate very clearly we see in Acts chapter 8. It's clear. I mean, we've got this from the very beginning of Acts. It's God's intention that this good news is going to go out everywhere. Right, That's the essence of Acts chapter 1, verse 8. That's the Great Commission statement in every gospel that Jesus gave. There's a version of it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and in Acts. The intention of God that disciples would be made everywhere, starting here in Jerusalem, which would be the base, the home base of the church, going out everywhere. So that's the point. That's what God is doing. And this passage is a powerful reminder for us of God's sovereignty over over salvation. But here's the point I want to make to you. There's a God side of the story, and there's a man side, and here's the God side of it. The sovereignty of God over salvation is your confidence in every single gospel conversation. The fact that God, by His Spirit, is already there. He's already working. He's already accomplishing His mission. Okay, that's your confidence, because when you're wondering, as I stutter, and as I stammer, and I'm not sure what to say, and I'm nervous, and I'm anxious, and and, you know I'm not sure if I'll give a compelling enough reason, I'm not sure if I'll I'll give a... um, you know, an interesting enough, a memorable enough, I don't have a, you know, I don't have this exciting testimony of deliverance, you know, all these things that we do to sandbag ourselves. You got to understand this, when you're about the mission of God, you're about the mission of God, and he's already there, he's sovereign over salvation in every encounter, so here's some things you can know, so write these fast, God is committed to the success of his own mission, I mean, when you read Acts chapter 8, you can't possibly think, man, look at Philip, this guy. Now, that's a masterful strategist right there. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get myself persecuted. I'm going to get kicked out of my house and home. And all the people that live around me are going to hate me. I'm going to go to Samaria, where the unclean people are. You know, those bastard people, that's what they call them. Don't look at me. These unclean people. You know, I hate these people, and they hate us. And I'm going to go there, and I'm going to preach the gospel to all of them. And we're going to see tons of them get saved. And then, you know what? What should I do next? Oh, I know. The Holy Spirit's going to teleport me to some desert road where I'm going to wait there for a chariot to come along. And then I'm going to share the gospel with this person. And then I'm going to go to Azotus. I don't know where that is, but I'm pretty sure that's where I'm going to go. And the gospel's going to end up in Africa, and it's going to blow up there. Man, this is the work of God. He's committed to the success of his own mission, and he's supernaturally involved. There is no conversion. That's not Supernatural. Okay, there's no conversion that's not supernatural. I don't want to minimize the value of learning apologetics, you know, how to defend your faith, how to address false beliefs, how to answer questions from uh, challengers or skeptics. There certainly is a place for that. And certainly we want to be accurate in what we say. But ultimately, what happens in conversion is supernatural. It's when God reaches his hand figuratively in a spot you and I can't reach was deep into the heart of a person whose heart's cold and hard and dead, and he brings life to it, and they respond. So you're praying and praying and praying and trusting and trusting and trusting that God is going to do God's thing there. He's supernaturally involved. He prepares the mind and the heart. He does that. He also sends the obedient messenger. But catch this, the obedient messenger, he enables. You're not out there on your own. He'll enable it. You might just find when you get into that conversation that all of a sudden it begins to flow better than you thought. Or things come to mind quicker than you imagined they would. Or clarity is yours because God's giving it. He speaks through his living word. Philip didn't get there and start sharing these cool stories and analogies and illustrations. The the gospel conversation here is so simply profound or so profoundly simple. Here's a guy reading a prophecy. I mean, you talk about the sovereignty of God, of all the things he could be reading here, okay? Of all the things he could be reading. Remember, there's no New Testament here, right? That hasn't come yet. When we talk about the Scriptures, that's what we would call the Old Testament. It's all there is. It's the law and the prophets, the poetry included, you know, Psalms and those things and Job and Proverbs. And he's reading Scripture. How fortuitous that he's reading one of the clearest, one of the most beautiful, one of the most poignant statements of Jesus. And he's reading Isaiah 53. And God is speaking to him. And then, it's the work of God to draw that person to himself. So know this, and, and maybe I've overcomplicated what I mean to be super simple. When it comes to gospel conversations, there's a whole Godward part that you and I don't have to worry about. We don't have to sweat. We don't have to concern ourselves with. We don't have to philosophize about. We don't have to compartmentalize. We don't have to label. We don't say, well, that's Calvinistic or that's our or, this is that. You just trust God to do God's thing because that's what God does. It's his mission, and he's told you he's going to accomplish it. But then there's a manward part and our side of things. And what's our side of it? It's really pretty simple, and it's kind of a two-part responsibility. Joyful willingness, biblical readiness. That's it. Joyful willingness, biblical readiness. In other words, if God says, go, I'm running. If God points me in that direction, I'm off. It's the song that you just sang. If you say go, I'll go. That's joyful willingness. But the other part of this is biblical readiness, and those are our responsibilities. As you see, I put in your notes, one of those is a matter of the heart. The other is a matter of the head. One's a matter of the heart, one's a matter of the head. The heart is my heart bent towards God to do what God wants me to do. Am I sensitive to the leadership of God? Am I looking for opportunities to be useful to God? Do I have a Godward heart? The second is, do I have a prepared mind? Am I ready to give an answer? Now, let me just ask you a quick question, and I, this is not some deep dive, but just in general, how many of you would say, whether it's your occupation or your favorite hobby. How many of you say you're pretty good at it? How many of you say you're pretty good at your job? Thank you. There's four. (laughs) Take note of those. Avoid the rest. All right, let me try a different way. How many of you have found something you really enjoy doing that you had to work at, but you've learned how to do it, and you're a lot better at it than you used to be? Let's try that. Look at there. And it was worth the time, right? Because the first time you swung a golf club, you looked like an idiot. You looked like Charles Barkley up there. Balls going everywhere. You can't even afford, much less the green fees, you can't afford the golf balls. Or you went fishing and you said, this is boring, this is terrible, I hate this. I'm just getting sunburned here. And I'm eating bad sandwiches. You know, but you learned. As you learned, you enjoyed. You got better and better. You learned skills. You worked at it. It was worth it. Listen, here's my simple point. It's worth it becoming adept at sharing the gospel with somebody. It doesn't take deep scholarship. It doesn't take seminary education. It does take something like Philip did here, which is really pretty simple. Somebody's reading something and says, do you understand what you're reading? And then listen, This so profound a statement, and yet so simple. Listen to what he says. When he asked him if he could understand it, Philip opened his mouth. Now, that's important too, because you're not witnessing to anybody with your good works, your good deeds, your bumper sticker, your shirt with the church name on it, You're not witnessing to anybody until you open your mouth. Beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Can you open up the Bible, take a passage of scripture, and tell him the good news about Jesus? Can you do that? Every Christian ought to be able to do that. That's a bare minimum. That's that's a bare minimum for any Christian to be able to say, listen, let me show you in the Bible. This is the good news about Jesus. You don't have to have a memorized plan. You need a Bible app maybe on your phone or some scriptures in your head, but begin to show them the scripture because it's the power of God's word at work when we share it. And that's exactly what he did, and that's our responsibility. There's one primary motive for this. I've been to a lot of evangelism conferences. I've heard a lot of preaching about why we should share the gospel, and probably many of you have as well. But I'm going to tell you what the primary biblical motive is for us to do this. It's the glory of God. It's the glory of God. It's that God would be known as he deserves to be known among the nations. It's to stand in a place or around a group of people, whether that's here or on some mission field somewhere, and to be standing there and to dawn on you, these people have no idea who God is. They have no idea how awesome God is. Or maybe in the the negative, to be thinking in that moment with concern and empathy, they have no idea what's going to happen to them when they stand before God one day. And for that to fall on you and say, God deserves to be known. This good news deserves to be known. It's the glory of God that motivates us. And there's one method. There aren't thousands of methods of sharing the good news. There's really one. And every legitimate one falls under this umbrella. It's the faithful explanation and application of the gospel message. That's it. Here's who Jesus is. Here's who you are. Here's what God expects. Here's the good news that God offers us in Christ in light of our sin. And here's what you got to do with it. That's it. Here's what makes the good news good. Because if believed, trusted, responded to, it'll undo the worst news possible that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that the wages of sin is death. I've got an antidote to that. I've got good news. Here's God's salvation. So we explain it, we apply it, and then we just trust God. We trust God. That's it. There's not a single text you'll ever find in Scripture that puts the results on you or me or anyone else. Philip, go back there and do it again, man. You've got to work on your technique. You've got to work on your application. You've got to add some humor into the mix. No, no, tell a personal story. No, you need to draw something. No, you need an object lesson. Tell the story of Jesus and how someone can make that story theirs. And then you trust God to do the work. In his great little book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, j.i. packer writes this our job is to go to our fellow men and tell them the gospel of christ and try by every means to make it clear to them to remove as best we can any difficulties that they may find in it to impress them with its seriousness and to urge them to respond to it that's our abiding responsibility and that's it i'm gonna wrap up with just some a couple other quick thoughts from the text If I had another shot at this text, I would include these and and focus on them, but I just don't want to leave them out. First one I hope you're seeing in all this, God is no respecter of persons here. We saw that from Paul's writings in Romans chapter 10, but I hope you also see it here. God is no respecter of persons. Nationality, socioeconomic status, religious background, God is no respecter of persons and you have to know this too heaven is going to be multicolored and if that's an issue for you you should repent now heaven's going to be multicolored I heard a tragic story from our own history I won't go into details or dates but a time here in our own church history where when an opportunity came for an African American to come be part of an adult Sunday school class the members of that class said if she comes we're not we won't come. it be our last Sunday if she does. And I wonder, I wonder what those people will think when they stand in heaven and they see exactly the heavenly ensemble of every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And no, we don't become colorblind. God created things of beauty for us to enjoy, which is all part of his creation. From every color we see in earth and sky to every color we see in skin and flesh tone. I mean, this is God's intent. God's desire is equal to the Ethiopians as it was to the Jews. His love for the Samaritans and his love for the Ethiopians is the same. He's no respect for persons. Third thing you need to see in this text, which I didn't hit at all, baptism here. He got baptized. You caught that, right? Baptism is for believers. And just so that you know, baptism is not one of those words that we translate directly from Greek into English. Baptism is a transliterated word. The word in Greek is baptizo. You know what it means? To put under water. Why do we baptize people by putting them under the water? Because every baptism in the Bible was this way. They put them under the water. How do we know? Because it says when they came up out of the water. And that's also what the word means. And so as a right response to Christ, people are baptized. And the gospel, this good news... It does deserve, it does require a response. It's not just enough to hear, God loves you and has got a wonderful purpose and plan for your life. And you gotta hear what this good news is about, what it displaces, and you have to respond to it. Okay, so when you're sharing the gospel with someone, when you're having that gospel conversation, okay, and again, pardon the analogy, I I hate to devalue even the, the sharing of the gospel this way, but I think it'll help bring the point to bear. If any of you have ever been or are in sales, it's great that you can present what you're selling, what your company is offering, or the benefits of this vehicle to someone in beautiful terms. And it's even better when you totally believe in the product that you're trying to sell, that you're a a consumer of it yourself, that you use it, you enjoy it, that you believe in it. I mean, those make for the best salespeople, right? The true believers. But if you don't ask for a response, if you don't ask if they would like one, If you don't say, what can I do to get you in this car today? You're the worst salesperson that's ever lived, and you won't have a job very long. Now, again, it's a poor analogy, but it's not enough to just share information. It's not just to throw stuff out there hoping that it'll stick. You've got to ask for a response. What about you? What about you? Is there any reason why you would not want to trust Christ today? Is there any reason why you would not want to put your faith in him today? Any reason why you wouldn't ask him to forgive your sins and give you life today? It requires a response. Now let me say this, and then I'm going to end. Maybe this morning as you're listening, you're on the other side of this equation. The whole message has been presumptive in the sense that I'm looking at all of us as potential Phillips. People on the way, people on the road, people out there with the gospel, wherever God has placed us, wherever God has sent us, mission fields all over the place. But maybe you're on the Ethiopian side of this. Maybe you're that guy. Maybe you're that guy in that chariot. And you got some pieces of the puzzle. You know, you've got a few. You got a few markers there along the way, but you don't know the path. You need someone to show you the rest of the way. Here's what should be encouraging to you from this text. God already knows you. Do you know that? He already knows. He already knows where you are. He already knows where you're headed. He already knows what you need. Already, he's, he's working in your life. He's working in your life. There's a reason, we're not told it. There's a reason why this man is now coming back from the temple. There's a reason why he's searching the scriptures and reading Isaiah 53. God's at work in his life, and we know specifically God is working in his life because God, somewhere in a place he can't see with someone he's never met or heard of, is tapping a missionary and saying, I want you to go talk to this guy. And that's the sovereignty of God. Listen, you're not unknown to God and your situation is not foreign to God and your life is not of no concern to God. He knows you. He's already at work in your life and he's offering you salvation, forgiveness of your sins, justification, being made right with God who one day will judge us all. And that judgment is an absolute judgment. There's no scale there relative good versus relative bad did I make it in by the skin of my teeth no it's an absolute judgment guilty not guilty sinful forgiven do a full payment for their sin or penalty already paid in Christ that's it he's offering you to have your penalty paid you may like this Ethiopian feel like you're outside of God's reach You may feel like you're so far out there, it can't be you, wouldn't be you. And I wonder, you know, as I see this Ethiopian reading this text, that maybe his experience with the temple, maybe his experience with Jewish people may have caused him to think he really was outside, and not ever able to get in. Because Jews had interpreted Deuteronomy 23 verse 1 for years as excluding men like this. He was a eunuch. If you don't know what that means, ask your parents. Deuteronomy 23 1, and I read this from a more PG version, no one who's been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord, Deut- Deuteronomy 23 one said. Now this particular text probably has more to do with assuming office, being a temple officer, serving temple duties, etc. Typically it would be because they were excluding in those early days of temple and t- or tabernacle life, not temple life, but tabernacle life, they're excluding those who by pagan rites of worship should not be integrated into, into Jewish rites of worship. But imagine this. Imagine if after this conversation, this new convert, whose name we don't know, he hears the gospel, hears the good news of Jesus, he gets baptized as a statement of his faith in Christ publicly, a public declaration of his faith and what Jesus has done for him. Imagine now Philip vanishes, and he keeps reading in Isaiah. It won't be long until he'll get to chapter 56. This is what the Lord says, verse 4. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. Can you imagine the joy of that ride to realize, wow, I'm included. God has included me. God, by His grace, includes me. Listen. If that's you, God knows. And today, this crossroads that you find yourself—we're not on a—we're not on a dirty Samaritan road. But here you sit. What's your response to the good news going to be? You know, Philip shared it. He had to receive it. And what are you going to do? I'm asking if you close your eyes with me as we pray. Father God, my prayer is super simple today. I pray you'd make every believer in this room including especially me more like Philip sensitive to your voice happy to obey it confident in your work fearless of reprisals or pushback joyful joyful bearers of joyful news I pray you'd make us more like Philip But Father, I also pray if there's anyone in the condition of this Ethiopian man riding along today and trying to figure it out, trying to put the pieces together, I pray they would understand this. It's sin, that's the issue. That's the big issue. That's the elephant in the room. My sins, exact a consequence. God, because He is perfect and holy, cannot not deal with sin he, he must or he is no longer just and holy and good and perfect and righteous but God in his mercy towards us as sinners has put forth his own son as an atoning sacrifice Jesus who had no sin therefore he could not be punished for his sin he took on our punishment but he who knew no sin the Bible says he became the righteousness he who knew no sin became sin so that you and I could become the righteousness of God in Him. In other words, He took all my debts of sin, put it on Him. He took His whole account of righteousness and put it on us out of grace and mercy. That's what He offers you today, the righteousness of Christ and all that that entails. If you're that one looking, trying to figure out today's your day, will you believe in Him? Will you trust in Him, believe and be baptized? That's my invitation. Father, I pray, make us more like Philip if we are yours. Give us hearts like this Ethiopian if we are not yet yours. And I pray that if we're that person, we respond to you by faith today in Jesus' name.